Father, as we come to this little text in uh, the middle of Revelation, we just ask today that, Lord, uh, we learn this great lesson that uh, you're teaching John uh, before he writes the rest of this book, Lord, this, this lesson that uh, whenever we approach your word, Lord, we need to look at all the aspects or all the lessons that you're trying to teach us, both the sweet and the bitter. Lord, sometimes we, we focus only on the sweet and we, leave the, let, uh, we, we uh, neglect the bitter. But uh, a good portion of your word, Lord, is bitter to the soul. And there's a reason it's bitter to the soul. And you've shown us that reason, Lord, that, that we're all sinners. And uh, Lord, except by the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, the sweet gospel that we love so much, uh, uh, would not be uh, there for us, Lord. It's by your grace, by the cross that we're saved. And Lord, that's such a sweet story. But Lord, the cross wasn't sweet. It was bitter. And, and uh, Lord, the things that we've done to offend you are, are bitter. There's just a lot of bitter things in this world and a lot of bitter things in our lives. And Lord, so help us to understand the importance of, of uh, not just just picking and choosing the text that we like, but studying the whole counsel of your word, Lord, and as, as it relates to prophecy, as it relates to, to the rest of the book, and as it relates to our lives. Lord, I just ask that you, you show us this lesson. Help us to learn to be people of the word, Lord, the whole word, so that we can uh, be like John and we can go out and reach the world uh, with your gospel. Help us to to be bearers of your truth. Show us, show us how we can today as we look at this lesson in Revelation 10. I ask for your grace over our study. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. I remember back in Katrina, after Katrina had hit, uh, several of the news stations in New Orleans were uh, interviewing some of the people who had been uh, affected by the storm and uh, there was this one particular lady they were interviewing, and she was from the Ninth Ward. And the reporter, and this really happened, the reporter asked her several questions. Uh, but one of the questions the reporter asked her was how the complete destruction of the churches in her area had affected her. And her response was, we quit, she said, we quit going to churches long ago. We get our chicken from Popeye's. <laughs> she really said that. <laughs> well, tragedies like Katrina affect us all in, in different ways. I mean, for some of us, it's all about the chicken, but for others, it's, it's, uh, it affects us differently. For me, Katrina was a bittersweet experience. I remember the night when Katrina approached New Orleans, and I remember watching that uh, Doppler radar and that symmetrical storm, uh, this red blob, but this perfect symmetrical circle out in the Gulf, and I just watched that for hours. I mean, you could just, you just could see it turning, and heading, I mean, it had a bullseye heading for New Orleans. Now, we had left New Orleans to come pastor this church in 2005 in August, I mean in July of 2005, and that storm hit in uh, August of 2005, so we barely missed it, but, but uh, I was watching that storm, and uh, I, watched it, I watched that radar so much that when I went to sleep that night, 
I mean, all I could see in my head was this red blob going around and around and around. And, and when we got up the next morning, uh, uh, you know, the storm had hit. It didn't look that bad. But as that storm came in, I, I hate to admit it, but I had this sense of excitement. And I had this it, almost a sweetness to my soul. Now, I, I, like I say, I hate to admit that. But I hadn't seen the effects of that storm yet. But, you know, I'd lived in New Orleans for nine years, and I'd seen what a decadent city New Orleans is. I mean, I, I mean, it wasn't many nights on the news that you didn't hear about somebody getting murdered. It wasn't, uh, you know, there was always robberies and all sorts of crime going on. Uh, uh, the city was steeped in the occult. Uh, it was a religious city, but... The religion was geared to feeding the flesh. And so, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's called Fat City, and there's a reason it's called Fat City, because it's, that city is all about indulging in the flesh. And the main religion in that city is, it promotes this indulgence of the flesh. And also, it just so happened that the week when Katrina hit New Orleans was the same week of the decadence festival, this festival where, where uh, uh, all of these homosexuals uh, converge on New Orleans, and New Orleans embraced this decadence festival, festival because it brought in so much money. They embraced it, and, and uh, they just turned their head as all of these uh, homosexual acts took place on the streets of New Orleans. And, and it made New Orleans just like Sodom and Gomorrah. So here comes this storm, and I see this storm coming. And part of me thought, felt this sweet sense of this feeling that justice was coming to New Orleans. And, and uh, that justice was going to be served. And they did cancel that decadence festival. And so I'm thinking, you know, I, I mean, I was... As I hate to admit it, but I was actually saying, hey, New Orleans is getting what they deserve. But then it hit, and the next day it flooded, and I saw all of the devastation and all of the destruction and all of the death, and, and I, I, I saw the incompetence of our government uh, in trying to help these people. They, they, they weren't getting the help they needed. People were dying, on the, you know, dying in their homes because they didn't have water and they didn't have food and their homes were flooded and they were living in their attics and you were hearing about all of these terrible stories and all of a sudden I felt this terrible bitterness in my soul. And you know what I was reminded of? I was, I was reminded of that line in the movie Unforgiven when Clint Eastwood said to that boy, he said, we all got it coming, kid. We all got it coming. I mean, maybe New Orleans had it coming, but let me tell you what, Lafayette has it coming too. And so does Jackson, Mississippi, and so does anyone at Birmingham, Alabama, and New York City, and Los Angeles, California. We've all got it coming. And, and judgment is a terrible thing, pill to swallow. Now, justice is a sweet thing. And as bad as Katrina was, it's nothing compared to these catastrophic, catastrophic events we, that are going to happen to this world in the Great Tribulation, these events that we've been reading about uh, in the 
in, in the first part of this book of Revelation. I mean, so far we've seen wars and disasters that kill one-third of the population of this world. One-third of the population of this world. I mean, that's billions of people. Two and a half to three billion people will die in the very first part of the Great Tribulation. And as we come to chapter 10, it's, the, the Tribulation is far from over, but, and John's going to write about the rest of the Great Tribulation, but before he does it, uh, God is going to prepare him for what, he's, uh, for what he's about to write about, what he's about to see, and what he's about to hear. And that's why we have this interlude, this short chapter, chapter number 10, right in the middle of Revelation. So, so let's go to Revelation chapter 10 and look with me down at verse number 1. Revelation 10, verse number 1. He says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, first of all, you notice, you look down at the text, he was clothed in a cloud. He wasn't visible to the people on this earth. He comes down from heaven, but he's clothed in a cloud. Now, if he came down to Lafayette, he wouldn't have to clothe himself because there's always clouds in Lafayette, but, but uh, at least this part, time of year. But he's clothed in a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. Now, we looked when we looked at this word rainbow before, it really is better translated, there was a halo above his head, a halo of light. His face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Now, the, the cloud that, come, that he's clothed in is not an atmospheric cloud. I have no doubt it is a heavenly cloud, a cloud of glory. I mean, uh, he has this, a uh, halo of light above his head. His face is shining with light. And his, sun, his, his, his face is his shining like the sun. And his feet are ablaze in glory. Now, it's a pretty majestic angel. That's, that's what we're, we're seeing right here. And that causes many people, or many interpreters to say, that this is none other than the angel of the Lord. Uh, the angel of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament. Who is the angel of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament? He's none other than Jesus Christ. I don't think this is the angel of the Lord. I don't agree with that interpretation. And let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, looking back at the text, where he says, I, still, I, I saw still another. The word another there means another of the same kind. And so... That angel was, in essence, an angel. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is 100% God. He's 100% human. But he doesn't have the essence of an angel. And that's the reason when you come to the New Testament and Jesus is born in Bethlehem, from that point on, you never hear him referred to as the angel of the Lord. He took on his humanity at Bethlehem, and he's no longer referred to as the angel of the Lord. He's referred to as the Son of Man, the Son of God, God Almighty, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He's not an angel. And so 
there's one other reason that I don't believe that this is Jesus Christ, because if you jump down to verse number six, and you don't have to read that yet, we'll get to it later on, but basically what he's going to do, he's going to swear by the creator. Now, who is the creator of all things? Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. So if he was swearing by the creator, he would just swear by himself. He doesn't swear by himself. He swears by the creator. And so this is an angel. Now, it's a glorious angel. He's a majestic angel. And the question has to be asked, why is he so glorious? Because he almost does look like the Son of God. Well, I believe that he's one of the seven angels. Where do the seven angels live? They live before the throne of God. They praise the Lord God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are constantly in God's presence. And when you're in God's presence, you're going to emanate God's glory. Do you remember when Moses went up on uh, Mount Sinai to get the law, and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he came down from Mount Sinai, and he had to cover his face because his glory was fading. He had that glory of the Lord, and so he had to cover his face. And then you remember when Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ in the presence of God. Their face was shining just like Jesus Christ's face was shining. That's why your face is going to be shining because you're going to be in the presence of the physical presence of God in glory when we get to heaven and when we live in the millennium with Jesus Christ. You're going to be pretty glorious yourself. So that's why he's so glorious here. Now, so you got this mighty angel. He comes down from heaven, and uh, just before he, he tells John to, to, to write what he wants him to write, he has something to give John. Look at verse number two. He said he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, that's a pretty big angel, that he can put his feet in the sea and he can put his feet in the land. I think that's, that's the reason uh, we're given that little tidbit of information, but it also refers to the fact that this judgment that's going to come to this earth that John is going to write about is going to affect both the land and both the sea. But look at what he's got in his hand. He's got a little book, and it's open in his hand. Now, Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus was given a scroll or a book, and that book had seven seals, and it contained the prophecies of all about the day of the Lord. And the book, the, the seals were open, and so the book was open. And the word for that book that Jesus was holding is, is the Greek word biblion. What word do we get from that? Obviously, Bible. It simply means book. And so I believe that the little book that the angel had in his hand was the same book that Jesus had when he opened a, a version of that same book that Jesus had that had the seven seals that were opened and then uh, all of the, the great tribulation began. Because it's the same word. It's just that book there in verse number two is the word biblion. It simply has the Greek suffix for little. So it's a little book. It's a miniature version of the same scroll that Jesus Christ had. Now, why would he be given a miniature version? Well, let me tell you why. Because he's about to have to eat the book. Now, it would be very difficult 
to eat this book right here. But if I gave you a little miniature version, we were here Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, the missionaries were here, and they gave us a little miniature Bible that's about this big. That'd be a lot easier to swallow if I, than if I, if I was, I was going to have to eat a book than this book. But he's going he's gonna to eat this book. And uh, uh, the reason he's going to eat this book is so that he can assimilate the book into his soul. That's the purpose of this. Uh, and all of this is symbolic. I actually believe he was given a little book, and he actually ate that book, but that book contained spiritual power that assimilated these truths deep down into his soul. All right, now, listen to what happens in verse number three. And the angel cried out, the angel, and he cried with a loud voice. As when a lion roars, when he, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, seven is that perfect number, that divine number. So I believe that these seven thunders that, that are, is the voice of God speaking. So uh, here's John. He's given this little book. And when he's given this little book, this, this angel cries out with a loud voice. Now, why does he cry out with a loud voice? Well, if you remember back in chapter number nine, you had these horses with lion's heads. And they bite the world like a lion. And they kill a third of the population of this earth. Now, what does a lion do after he kills his prey? If you've ever watched some of these National Geographic, I don't recommend that network, by the way, but if, if you have to watch these, these, uh, these shows where the lion kills his prey, what does he do after he kills his prey? He roars. You know, he roars in, in, in victory. He, he roars. And so this angel roars uh, after these events have taken place, and now we're going to get the rest of the, the book of Revelation. And what does a lion do before he kills his next prey? He roars again. And so this lion is, is, is I mean, this angel is roaring because the second half or the second part of the great tribulation is about to take place. And not only does the lion roar, the angel roar, we hear these seven thunders uh, who utter their voices. Now, what do they utter? We don't know. And we're not supposed to know. Let me show you. Look at verse number four. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, there are two. All the cults will tell you they know exactly what was said here. But I, I don't think they read verse four. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to... I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say to me, seal, seal up the things which the seven thunders are uttered and do not write them. Now, I would love to know what they uttered. John liked what they uttered because he was about to write it down. He was about to write it down uh, uh, because he was impressed by what God uttered, but he's told not to write it down, to seal it. Up. I don't know why he put that in there, because that gives me, you know, it, 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 it makes me anxious to know what was said here. Why would God seal it up? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons. Number one is that it might be past our understanding. God has a fin infinite mind, and we have finite minds, and what he uttered we might not be able to understand. But I don't think that's the reason, because John was going to write it down. I'll tell you, I think the main reason he didn't write it down for us is that, listen carefully, it's none of our business. 
It's none of our business. He didn't want us to know what was uttered here. One day we will know what was uttered here. And I, 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 when I get to heaven, I'm, you know, I don't know if I'll even remember to ask the Lord, but that might be one of the things I'll ask him. You know, what did you utter? I mean, what was the sound that was uttered on, you know, uh, when these uh, uh, seven thunders uh, spoke? But maybe we'll find out then. All right. Then look down at verse number five. He says, then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. Now, you want to get the picture here that John's given us. He's got the little book in his left hand, and he raises up his right hand. So what's he about to do? He's about to swear on this little book. And so he swore, verse number six, and swore by him who lives forever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Now, who is this that he swears by? That is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And so we know that he's swearing by Jesus Christ. And he's swearing here that he's swearing here uh, that hey, there should be no delay any longer. And look at verse number seven. He says, "But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished." Now, what's the mystery of God that he's talking about? You know, if you do a study like we've done on Wednesday night of Daniel and the rest of the prophets, especially the minor prophets, there's a mystery there. There's a mystery there about the second coming and the first coming of Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. Because you'll be looking at these prophecies, and you'll see a prophecy where Jesus, like we were looking in Zechariah, and we saw this prophecy of uh, Palm Sunday, and then in the very next verse, Zechariah speaking of the millennium. Well, it's a mystery. You can't figure that out based upon what we know from the Old Testament. All the, you look at Daniel's 70 weeks. That, that, what happened to that last week? None of that makes any sense in, until that mystery is revealed. And that mystery is revealed to us in the book of Revelation. That's why the book of Revelation is so important because it is God revealing the mysteries that he spoke about in the Old Testament. He's revealing them to Christians who are reading the New Testament. And so uh, he says in verse number 7, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. All those things that God wrote about in the prophets are going to be finished. And that's what's happening here is when we come to chapter 11, we're going to see the very last days before Jesus Christ comes back to this earth and he sets up his kingdom in the millennium. The mystery of God will be finished as he declared, now watch this, to his servants, the prophets. Here's what he's swearing. He's swearing that the wait is over. Well, wouldn't you like to have been there with John? I've got to tell you something. I think if the angel walked in this room right now, he would, you know what he would say? Guys, the wait is over. Things are about to happen. 
Now, John was right in the middle of the tribulation when he's told the wait is over, but I think he would tell us, you better get ready. The wait is over. The Lord is about to return. The trumpet's about to blow. The church is going to be raptured, and the, and the uh, great tribulation is going to begin. The, the Lord is at hand. We're very, very close to that day. And so he swears that the wait is over, that the time for Jesus Christ to come is, is at hand, and he's going to establish his kingdom just as he prof, 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 promised through the prophets. Now, I got no doubt at this point John is pumped. I mean, he's excited. I mean, the day of the Lord, the day that he longed for, the day that the whole church is longed for, he's there when it arrives. I mean, it's the day when this wicked world, the wicked in this world are going to be destroyed. Justice is going to be served. God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That day has come. But, and John's excited. He's got a sweetness, this sweet feeling in his spirit. He's excited about what's going to happen. I mean, he's saying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He, they all cried that throughout their whole, you know, their whole lives before they died and went on to be in heaven. They cried out, Lord, come quickly. And, and here's the problem. The same problem or the same bad attitude I had about Katrina when I kind of said, Lord, get them. And there was a sweet spirit in my soul about this storm that was coming in to really wreak havoc on New Orleans and, and, and punish all of those wicked people. That's a selfish attitude. That's a selfish attitude. It, because except by the grace of God, I would perish in a storm like that. And if I perished, I would go to hell. And so John is pumped and he's excited because the wait is over, but it's a selfish attitude. And I think a lot of us are guilty of doing the same thing when we approach prophecy. I listen to some of these prophecy guys on the radio, and all I hear, you know, get the wicked, get this thing on, and rapture us and take us to heaven so we can be with the Lord, and Jesus Christ will come back here and rule and reign. That's all sweet to the soul. But there's another side to that story. Before that happens, there's going to be a lot of people hurting and dying. And, and a lot of people are going to end up in hell. And, and that's why John is told to eat this little book, because he wasn't ready to prophesy about the, the great tribulation. He wasn't ready to tell about the horrors that were to come. And so God wants him ready, and so he tells him, I want you to eat this little book, and I want you to absorb all of this into your soul, not just the sweet, but also the bitter. Look at verse number eight. And he says, then the voice which I heard from heaven, and now this is the voice of God, spoke to me again and said, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And John says, so I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it and, I'll, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey to your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it, and it was very, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I absorbed it into my soul, when I'd eaten the whole thing, 
my stomach became bitter. So, so what's the purpose of John eating this little book? So that he can assimilate the entire word, not just the parts he liked, but the entire word into his stomach. The sweet things, the sweet things like the rapture, the second coming, and the millennium, those are all sweet things. But also the bitter things, like the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath. And so God's preparing him to preach this prophecy, to teach this prophecy, to write down this prophecy with the right heart, not a selfish heart. It's the same way he prepared Ezekiel before Ezekiel prophesied. You ever read the book of Ezekiel? That's, that's, a, that's a tough read. But Ezekiel went through a similar process. Turn with me back to the Old Testament if you can find it. It's a pretty big book back there uh, at the beginning of the prophets, uh, the book of Ezekiel. And let's look how God prepared Ezekiel because he does basically the same thing. And if he prepared Ezekiel like that, and he prepared John like that, then I think he wants to prepare us like that. Look at, look at the process that Ezekiel went to. Go to chapter number 2. And look down in verse number 9. And God is speaking to Ezekiel, and he's working in Ezekiel's heart. Look, Ezekiel had a hard time. Ezekiel, before he even begins to write this book, had been a prophet in Israel. And he had prophesied about the doom of Israel that if they didn't get their act straight, that they were all going to perish. And they laughed at Ezekiel. They persecuted Ezekiel. They scorned Ezekiel. So now the Lord says, hey, the time has come. Actually, when Ezekiel writes the first part of this book, it's already happened. The Babylonians have come. They've taken the first group of, of uh, Israelites into captivity. They've killed most of them. Jeremiah said that in the last part of his book, they took 4,300 Israelis captive. There were millions in Jerusalem, and 4,300 of them went to Babylon. And the rest were slaughtered. And so Ezekiel has, he's been trying to warn these people, and they haven't been listening. And now judgment comes, and he has this sweet feeling in his soul. And so God wants to prepare his heart before he can preach to this remnant and he can preach to Israel. Look at verse number nine. He says, now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it and he spread it before me. He's talking that he is capitalized. I think that means this is the Lord that is doing this for Ezekiel. He says, then he spread it before me and there was a writing on the inside and on the outside and written on it were lamentations and mournings, and woe. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and watch this. He says, and I ate it, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Before he got it into his soul, he liked what he read. I mean, why was a prophecy about lamentations and mourning and woe so sweet to Ezekiel? Because they had given him a hard time. 
And he had seen the wicked in this world. I mean, you look around today in the United States of America and you want to say, Lord, get a, bring a hurricane in there. They deserve it. You know, bring a, you know, bring a 9-11. People, does, people in New York deserve that. And, 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 and we all deserve it. We all got it coming, kid. We all deserve judgment. But when we're trying to t- warn people and tell people that judgment is coming, we're trying to get people to get in the world, trying to get into the word and get people out of the world and get people into the gospel and to receive Jesus Christ in their hearts, and then they reject us. Then, then when we hear about them being judged, there's almost a sweetness that comes into our mouth, but then we don't really understand the judgment. We don't really understand what judgment is. Judgment is a terrible thing. I mean, we talked about hell last week. People who die not knowing the Lord right now will go down into Hades, and Hades is a place of total silence as far as the Lord is concerned. It's a place of total darkness. It's a place of fire. It is a waterless pit until we absorb that in our souls. We won't care what happens to anybody else. And so Ezekiel says, you know, I'm going to be vindicated now. Everything I warn these people about is happening. And that gave him a sweet sense of pleasure that he would be justified and vindicated. And then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my word, speak with my words to them. And then look what he says down in verse number seven, get prepared. Hey, if you're going to go out and you're going to share the gospel, be prepared for exactly what Ezekiel had to be prepared for. Verse number seven, but the house of Israel will not listen to you because they won't listen to me. If they won't listen to me, they're not going to listen to you. For all the house of Israel are impotent and hard-hearted. You see the heart of the Lord here? He's describing this people who won't even listen to him, won't listen to his prophets, won't do the right thing. They'll cry for the rocks to fall out on them before they'll cry out to the Lord. And yet he still loves them enough to send prophets to them. And he wants us to love them the same way. Look, jump down to verse number 10. More he said to me, son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you. And hear with your ears, both the sweet and the bitter. At that point, I don't believe when, when the Lord gave that command, he also gave, uh, and, and Ezekiel had absorbed this word into his heart, he also gave him the spiritual fortitude to have the right heart as he preached this judgment to the nation of Israel. Because look down at verse number 14. Look how he changes. He says, so the spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in bitterness, in the anger of, or the heat of my spirit, anger of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong with me at that point. Why was the spirit strong? Why was the spirit so, uh, why was Ezekiel so full of the spirit? Because he was ready to preach 
with a broken heart. You know, none of us, none of us are ready to deal in this word if we don't do it with a broken heart. If all we do is look at this word and say, whoa, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this, look at them, they aren't. I'm good and they're wicked. We're missing the point. We haven't absorbed the whole word, and we're full of pride. And, and, and John, you know, I don't think there's a greater man who's ever lived than the apostle John, but, but it's real easy. It's real easy to just take the sweet things of the word and ignore the things we don't like. And to just get excited about the good things and forget about everybody else. Get excited about how we're impacted by these things and forget how they impact others. So here's John. And, and let's go back to Revelation. And here's, here's John. And he's been persecuted. Let me think of, think of poor John. He's been persecuted by his fellow Jews. He's been persecuted by the Romans. He's been persecuted by everybody. And now he's living in exile on Patmos, and he has these great visions, and he sees judgment coming on those people who have persecuted him. And he feels really good. He has a sweet spirit. He has a sweetness in his spirit. Because he's going to be vindicated. Justice is going to be served on this pagan and lost world that have treated him so badly. But then he eats the little book. The whole book. And he absorbs the word in its entirety and these prophecies deep down in his soul. And he realizes the horrors that are about to come upon this earth And his spirit becomes bitter. Sweet going in. But once it gets there, his spirit becomes bitter. Now he's ready to be God's prophet to the people. Now here's John. This is what's cool about this. John is 100 years old almost at this point. But he comes away from Patmos, a changed man. You know, it's interesting that he wrote Revelation first. John, 2 John, 3 John, some of his best works. I think, believe he wrote his gospel before he was on Patmos, but these other works that where he prophesies, he wrote when he left Patmos and went back to Ephesus as an elder. And so it's really interesting here how you have this heart change. That's why in the book of John, I think the word love appears 70 times about loving others, about loving. You know, John had a vision of what's going to happen to this world. And instead of being glad about it, all these people being destroyed, all of a sudden he loves this world. He loves the people. He doesn't love the world, this world system. He doesn't love the wickedness, but he loves the people. And he's ready to prophesy because look at verse number 11. He says, the last verse, and he said to me, And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Sometimes I'm a big proponent of the New King James Version, but sometimes 
they make a bad translation, and I really think they make a bad translation here. The word again there, where he says again, that is the Greek word epi, and I want to give you a Greek lesson here and bore you with that. But most of the time, that word is translated over. It's translated upon or over. And that's definitely what's appropriate. He's not prophesying about many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. He's telling, the angels tell him to prophesy over these people. To proph- you know what you do when you're prophesying over people? You're putting your hands on those people and you're blessing those people. You want to bless them. You want to see them saved. You prophesy upon them. You, you, you reach out to them. He's not just prophesying. The, the way his heart was before, he was prophesying about what was going to happen. Now he's prophesying upon many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. And, and he's doing it now with both a cheerful heart and a broken heart. And so the, the Lord says to him, the angel says to him, hey, you're going to prophesy. And the prophecies that you write down are going to reach many nations and many peoples and many tongues and kings. In other words, use this prophecy to reach as many people as you possibly can. You think maybe John's done that? I mean, think about the millions of people over the centuries who have read the book of Revelation and have been changed by what they've read. I mean, you take the Spirit of God and you get somebody into the book of Revelation and this book comes to life, it will scare you. It will horrify you. It will also bless you because it's both sweet and it's bitter. I mean, the, the, the bitter things in here are just as true as the sweet things in here are. But there's, there's so many blessings promised, but there's also judgment promised. And so John, over the centuries, when he went and left Patmos and he wrote down the book of Revelation and 1 John, I mean, his purpose in that was to reach as many people as he possibly could. That was his purpose in the gospel. But it was also his purpose in, in writing the book of Revelation. And, and over the years, there have been all sorts of people. I've met people who have read the book of Revelation. They've heeded the warnings. They've repented of their evil ways. And they've come to the Lord. And that's why John's heart had to be changed. What about our hearts? I mean, do we need to change our hearts? Are we approaching the word the way God wants us to approach the word? I mean, not only are the prophecies of Revelation both bitter and sweet, all prophecy is bitter and sweet. I mean, most of you haven't been here for Wednesday nights, and I'm not trying to urge you to be here. But we've gone through these minor prophets, and, and it's really a lot of work because the first 90% of all of these prophecies are bitter. They're very bitter. I mean, you, can't, you, just, you just keep going and going, and you can't wait till you get to the end of the prophecy because that's where it gets sweet. But you can't have the sweet without the bitter. The bitter comes first. I mean, the warnings have to be there. Not only are the prophecies in Revelation and the prophecies of the Old Testament 
both bitter and sweet. The whole Bible is both bitter and sweet. The Bible is a paradox. I mean, it's a paradox. It's bitter on one end and it's sweet on the other. I mean, the, what, the gospel itself is bittersweet. I mean, think about the gospel. The, uh, I mean, one of the best uh, versions of the gospel is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, bitter. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Sweet. It's bitter and it's sweet. And so the problem today, here's the problem today. People want to hear the sweet, but they never want to hear the bitter. So people don't want to give out the bitter. They just want to give out the sweet. I mean, the prosperity gospel, there's truth in the prosperity gospel. But when all you get is sugar, you're going to end up with a disease. You're going to end up with a diseased soul. And so you've got to take the bitter with the sweet. I mean, the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, the universalist, all of those things just teach the sweet and they ignore the bitter. You know, the gospel will never be sweet until you partake of the bitter. You know, I don't know about you, but what makes the gospel so sweet to me is that I was a doomed sinner heading for hell. That's truth. That's throughout the Bible, that truth is taught. And by the grace of God, he saved me. And that makes it sweet. And the, and the, the more you have forgiven, Jesus says, the more you love the Lord. And I got to tell you, he forgave me an awful lot. He's forgiven me an awful lot since I woke up this morning. Actually, he forgave me an awful lot for what I dreamed last night. He's always forgiven me. And, it, and, it's, and I read about, I'm condemned and convicted, not condemned, but I'm convicted all the time by what I read in this Bible. And it makes the gospel so sweet. That's what makes it sweet. And, and, I, and, and our problem is we, 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 we're always in Christendom handing out the sweet and we never have it out the bitter. You know, I was listening to 102.9. I was riding my motorcycle the other day. I was listening to 102.9, and they had their verse of the day. Their verse of the day out of Lamentations was, uh, your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I love that passage. There's not a sweeter verse in the Bible than that verse. But have you ever read Lamentations? There's 150 other verses in Lamentations that aren't so sweet. In fact, every single one of them are bitter. And what makes that one verse so sweet is that the bitter is just as true as the sweet part. I mean, we're wretched. We're lost without God. We need God every minute of every day. And if we don't walk with God, we're in trouble. But if we get up every day and we look to God, great is thy faithfulness. His mercies are new every day. But you don't really get that by just getting that one verse. You've got to get the whole book of Lamentations. How many of you, read, how many of you read Lamentations? As, don't raise your hand. As, as a devotional. I mean, that's where you go to when you really, where you really want to be encouraged. Don't go to Lamentations or Jeremiah. Those aren't two books you want to go to when you want to be encouraged. Go to the Psalms. 
And then there's some psalms you better leave alone too. But we got to get the bitter along with the sweet. You know, none of us, we, ha- we don't have any business teaching our children the Bible. We don't have any business pastoring a church. We don't have any business teaching a Sunday school class. We don't have, have any business handling this word at all until we've absorbed the whole book, until we've eaten this whole book. And we teach about these judgments with a broken heart, with a tear in our eye. Until that happens, you have no business just throwing out the sweet. You fill your refrigerator with all sorts of sweet verses and you ignore the rest of it, that sweetness is meaningless. It's like saccharin or something. It's, it's, it's bad for you. But when you get the whole counsel of the word and you hear both the bitter and the sweet, it changes your heart. It changes your heart. And when it changes your heart, it breaks your heart. And you care for the lost of this world. You care for others, not just yourself. And that kind of faith, that kind of faith that's full of love, like John had when you read the book of 1 John, that kind of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, by the spirit of God. And if you ignore that, and all you do is try to pick you out little sweet verses and listen to them all the time, you're going to miss the boat. And you're not going to be able to be used by God to reach anybody, including your own family. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for this little passage here, this little interlude where John is given a lesson, Lord, about uh, looking at your word in its entirety, about looking at how these prophecies and and warnings and, and judgments affect others other than ourselves, Lord. Help us to have a heart for the lost. Help us to see the the dangers that are coming to this world, the storms that are on the horizon, Lord. And help us have a heart to reach people. Lord, we can only get that when we partake of your word. We partake of both the bitter and the sweet. Lord, that's our task. And we know that when we do that and we make the effort to do that, that by your spirit, you're going to, You're going to change our hearts, and you're going to make us the kind of witness that we need to be. Help us to be that, Lord. We can only be that by your Spirit, and that comes through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray in his precious name. Amen.